Today we continue a series of discussions about the basics of Marxism, a method for understanding and changing the world used by activists, scholars, educators, and many of the great revolutionaries of modern history. This week we continue our multi-part series on agriculture under capitalism with a special focus today on the present-day factory farming system. What effect does the modern process of capitalist agricultural production have on workers, farmers, animals, and the environment? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it, capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolff again join us for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the Socialist Program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, when Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. Richard Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Richard, before we start talking about factory farming, it just occurred to me because we were talking a little bit before this show about how the interest in socialism and for instance, the interest in what you're doing, what you've been doing your entire adult life, how that's just exponentially growing, and how the interest in socialism, of course, means that the taboo, the fear or hostility or animus, or just let's call it fear because that was the dominant focus, how that's lifted. And, you know, we're getting such amazing feedback from our show and from your segments on our show about the basics of Marxism. Just say a little bit, again, for our audience about your own experience, because I think it's important for newer people to this or younger people to know about the fact that what we're experiencing with this revival of interest in socialism is something quite new. Anyway, just I want to get your comments on that before we get started. Sure. I've been marveling, and I've mentioned it to you, that starting about 2011, 2010, somewhere around 10 years ago now, there was suddenly a change in my situation that I've come to understand is a change in the larger society here in the United States. Prior to that time, I have always been a professor of economics, and so I would be invited uh, once every three months, uh, once every two months, 
to do some sort of interview on the media, talk to a reporter or something like that. And that was it. And then suddenly, well, I should add, when I did the interview, my host, whoever was interviewing me, would begin by saying something like this. Today, I'm glad to welcome Professor Richard Wolf. He's one of those. And then there would be a word like Marxist or socialist or as if the host knew that he or she was taking some kind of humongous chance and wanted to inoculate the audience lest they be infected by what they were about to hear. It was a little bit like those announcements that something profane is going to be spoken in the next few minutes in case you want to cover your ears or turn down the volume or something like that. A warning. Yeah, that kind of warning of something noxious that's about to assail you. You know, it would make my conversation difficult for people to take seriously because in a sense they had been made to feel that what I was about to say was in some way odd or strange. In the last seven, eight years, and it's going more and more with each passing year, not only am I speaking more often, I do a minimum of two to three radio or television interviews every single day. You're my second today, and I have more after you. It's completely different. Nobody inoculates the audience. People look out for opportunities to interview me. It's, it's very ego-boosting for me. I won't deny it for a moment. But I'm very pleased that these ideas which were so difficult for my American fellow citizens to cope with for most of my life are now exciting and are now interesting because it really isn't me. I'm not saying anything all that different, and that's good. It's the audience. It's the American people that have changed. Here's another way to dramatize it. I was lucky in my life, even though my parents were immigrants and I'm the first generation born and raised lived all my life here in the United States, I was lucky to go to the good schools. My parents were very big on education. So I went to Harvard as an undergraduate, and then I went to Stanford and got my master's degree, and then I finished and got my PhD in economics at Yale University. So I'm a bit of a poster boy for elite education. I spent 10 years, two semesters a year, 20 consecutive semesters of undergraduate and graduate education in the elite universities of the United States. When I began, and I already did at that age, to ask questions about the capitalist system that I lived in and that I expected to live in all my life, I immediately understood something the way a, a young person or a child does. My teachers were afraid. They were afraid at Harvard. They were afraid at Stanford, and they were afraid at Yale. Lord knows how much fear there would have been at places less prestigious, less secure than those institutions. My teachers either didn't know the answers to the questions I had about Marx and Marxism and socialism and communism and anarchism and all those interesting things that I was encountering, or they didn't know the answer, but were really uncomfortable having to say so, having to respond. 
And I learned, because I didn't hate my teachers, some of my teachers were very good, it wasn't that, but I didn't want to make their lives unpleasant, I didn't want to agitate them, so I learned it on my own. But those institutions didn't teach me anything. I like to tell people that one semester out of the 20, I had a professor who assigned some works of Karl Marx. The other 19 out of 20 semesters, even though the courses were in economics and history and political science, it was as if Marxism didn't exist. It was ignored most of the time or dismissed with a breezy wave of the hand the rest of the time. And that was not because people had done a critique of it. They hadn't. They had run away from it. And you're right, Brian, it's all about fear. They were afraid. And you know, in history, we will look back on these Cold War years from 1945, almost up until now, as a shameful period of American history, because it was a country so afraid of the criticisms of capitalism that it had to deal with them as a taboo. You could more readily talk about sex or other tabooed topics than you could talk in any kind of balanced way about socialism or Marxism. There were no strengths and weaknesses of capitalism to be compared with strengths and weaknesses of socialism. No, no, no. It was that kind of crazy universe in which everything good had to do with capitalism and everything bad had to do with socialism which is not a sign of a mature judgment. It's a sign of either an ignorant person, but that wasn't the case in my education. I was surrounded by perfectly smart folks. It was just fear, the fear of a criticism. And you know what happens to a society that can put that kind of fear in its people? It can indulge all the worst qualities because no one dares to say, hey, this is out of order, or that isn't working, or this is unfair. You're afraid to say it for fear that you will be lumped among those evil critics. And so what happens is after a few decades, the society is full of problems it hasn't solved, problems it's kicked down the road, problems it was afraid to confront. And we're living it now. We're living the results. You know, here we are, the United States, four and a half percent of the world's population, 20 percent of the world's deaths from COVID. Here's a country that has just finished 20 years of war in Afghanistan and in Iraq. The United States, the richest country in the world with by far the most powerful military going to war against two countries that rank always among the poorest countries in the world. And the U.S. loses, and those two countries emerge with the enemy of the United States stronger after 20 years of war than they were when the war started. These are not any more details or minor issues. These are products of a society that could not handle internal criticism of its economic system. 
had to shut all that down and is now paying a heavy price. Those are such important points. And the irony here is that the United States tells itself and the ruling class or the centers of opinion molding in the United States tell the people of this country, we are the freest in the world. You know, we are the democracy that's the model for the rest of the world. But when you consider the fact that socialism and Marxism, which is obviously a vibrant philosophy, a doctrine, certainly a guide for, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people in all continents. But if you talked about it here, you'd either be shunned or you'd lose your job. Or for many political leaders, they actually went to prison, not for what they had done, but for what they thought or what they believed in. But Richard, let's go on to our topic at hand. And this is, of course, a multi-part series. We're not rushing through it. We think it's extremely important to have an understanding of agriculture in capitalism or under capitalism and to have the Marxist perspective on these issues. So I want to begin in our discussion today about factory farming with two quotes, one from a Marxist, that would be Karl Marx himself, and secondly, from an organization that focuses on factory farming that is not at least explicitly Marxist and perhaps not Marxist at all. But here we go. Marx writing in Capital, Volume 3. So it may have been, let's say, Marx and Engels because Marx died before Volume 2 or 3 were finished and Engels took on the task of taking all of those notes and producing the second and third volume. So even though they're called Capital by Marx, we have to tip our hat to the amazing scholarship and work of Frederick Engels who made them possible. But here's the quote. It's a fairly well-known passage from volume three. Quote, a rational agriculture is incompatible with the capitalist system, although the latter promotes technical improvements in agriculture and needs either the hand of the small farmer living by his own labor or the control of associated producers. So here's Marx more than 150 years ago saying, a rational agriculture is incompatible with the capitalist system. Now I'm going to read from an organization called the Humane League, not at least on their website explicitly Marxist. Here's what they say about factory farming. Thanks to undercover investigations, documentaries, and other educational efforts, the plight of animals in the factory farming industry is becoming increasingly clear. Less widely known, however, are the environmental impacts of these facilities. Whether it's polluting the air and water, contributing huge volumes of greenhouse gases that exacerbate climate change, or threatening wild species with extinction, there is ample evidence to demonstrate why it's high time factory farming itself goes extinct. What is factory farming? And I'm going to read this paragraph and then toss it to you, Professor Wolf. Factory farming is a form of intensive agriculture that involves confining large numbers of animals within small, sorely inadequate living spaces for companies to maximize profits in selling their bodies or milk to consumers. Various species are targeted for factory farming, including pigs, cows, sheep, turkeys, chicken, and ducks. 
Routine mutilations, whether severing portions of birds' beaks or lopping off the tails of cows and baby sheep, as well as the endless application of antibiotic drugs, are defining features of factory farms. And then they go on and talk about how it causes air pollution, water pollution, global warming, deforestation, overuse of water use, on and on, including the destruction of oceans and fisheries. Professor Wolf, Karl Marx didn't know about factory farming. He knew about factories, though, so he might have imagined that at some point factories would go to the countryside as well. And of course, Capitalism has its roots, in fact, in the rural areas, in agriculture, before it migrates to manufacture in the cities. But I want to get your take. Well, I think the key point in Marx's argument and in the observations that you read after that is this question of profit. I mean, it's a very basic point, but it is so often forgotten. The logic of the capitalist system the way every businessman or woman is educated, either on the job or going to a business school, is to learn that the name of the game, the point of the exercise, the bottom line, as we like to say, is profit. You are successful in your business if it generates a profit. That's the bottom line. The bottom line is not some conversation about the social usefulness of what you do or the beauty or the aesthetic of it or the human relationships among the people who participate in producing it or, for that matter, consuming it. No, no, no. You don't have to worry about all those abstract, difficult-to-measure issues. It's a simple question. How much more money do you have at the end of this process compared with the money you had at the beginning? The bigger the difference, the greater your profit, the more successful you are. And that's how our system works. If you're an executive of a company that's profitable, you have a bright future, either in that company or getting hired away by another company that hopes you will do for them the nice profit performance you've done so far. And you know what want to kill your career? If you want to learn how to do it, do badly. Be the executive in charge of a division or of the entire company that loses money, that has low or no profits for a year or two or five or ten. That's the end. No one's going to want to hire that because that's the opposite of the point. Now, why am I hammering at this? Because the factory farm is the farm that made the most profit. The capitalist farmer, the farmer wanting to make a profit. And by the way, it's not just that you want to make it, but if you don't make a profit, then you don't have as much money as the guy next to you who did make a profit. And that competitor of yours who didn't make a profit will use the profit to get even more advantages, to buy a new machine, to use a new pesticide, to inject his animals with some new hormone, whatever, and you won't be able to afford it because you didn't make as much profit. So making profit is the point and purpose and the reward. Not making profit is the punishment and the route to disaster. You put people in a situation like that and they become monomaniacal. They become focused on the profit. So it turns out 
if I'm producing a chicken and you're producing a chicken on a farm, but if I can inject that chicken as a baby chick with this chemical or that chemical and I will get more eggs or I will get eggs sooner, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to worry that the chicken will have a difficult life. I'm not going to worry that there might be a side effect that makes these eggs have effects on the people who eat them that we don't want to ever know about. I'm not going to spend the money to determine whether it's safe to use this. Just like the company that's selling me what I injected to that chicken doesn't want to look real closely at what the side effects are. They want to sell the chemical, just like I want to produce more eggs. And the history of farming is the history of doing what made more profit. And now we're discovering that what those capitalists never had to pay for and therefore never counted in their calculations of what's profitable is what's killing us as a people. It's the pollution that they never counted or paid for. It's the secondary effects on our diets that they never cared about or paid for. It's the health we have or don't have eating the products of all of that. I go into a supermarket here in the United States. I have to do it every two or three days like everybody else who feeds themselves. And I've noticed over the years one sign after another. I now go and look for the organic section. What is the organic section? It's a section mostly produced by people who are not factory farmers who are trying to take into account what all the side effects are or at least as many as they can be honestly committed and saying to you I have gone that extra step I haven't injected my chicken with a chemical I haven't used artificial pesticides or fertilizers I'm not doing that because I now know not only that it's bad for people, but that I can make a living by saying to people, I can deliver to you food that is safe to eat, that is healthy for you to eat. Yeah, you're going to have to pay me a bit more, but what's the bottom line? Is it profit for me, the farmer, or is it a healthier community, a better community, better served, less irritated mentally and physically by God knows what chemistry is maximizing the profit of the factory farmer. And the answer, the sad answer in the United States, it's mostly upper income people, not all, but mostly upper income people who can afford the organic, the local, the safe, the farmer's market, all of that. And where do the mass of people who don't have the income of the first group go? They go to the traditional supermarket. And there they buy the traditional food coming off the factory farm and giving us the obesity for which the United States is a world leader and the endless ailments that come from a diet governed not by what's healthy, and nutritious by what's profitable. In the end, it's the capitalist system that puts this profit 
ahead of everything else. And remember what that means. In every enterprise, whether it's a farm or a factory, the vast majority of people involved are workers, employers. The employer, the owner, the board of directors is a tiny minority. They get the profits. You and I get the wages and salaries. To say that business is to maximize profit is to say that in capitalism, the entire community, the majority of employees and the minority of employees are all working to maximize the portion of output that goes to the employers, the minority as their profits. That's not democratic, that's the opposite of democratic. In any democratic community, whether it's where you live or the community where you work, the majority is supposed to rule. The majority is supposed to make the decisions. Well, you know what the majority wants? Good food, safe food, nutritious food. Only the minority wants the profits. And as the ultimate irony, the minority that gets the profits, they're the ones who never shop in the supermarket they supply. They go to the elegant organic market and buy precisely what they would never themselves produce. Richard, we're having another hurricane or tropical storm coming up the East Coast in the next couple of days. We were covering earlier some of the impact of earlier hurricanes. There was Hurricane Florence that was such a devastating hurricane for the southeast part of the country in 2018. In North Carolina, there were 110 lagoons of pig waste. These are gigantic pools, ponds of pig waste, of pig excrement, and they're open air. In Hurricane Florence, 110 of those lagoons overflowed from the hurricane. They're open air. They overflowed, and so they went into the farmland. They went into neighborhoods. All of this devastation and the concentrated animal feeding operations, and there's 20,000 of them all over the United States, they combine huge numbers of animals, in this case pigs, and they have a system whereby the corporations, the agribusiness, pool this pig excrement. When the hurricane comes, when it spreads all over, all of this toxic waste into people's property, into their homes, into their neighborhoods, into their farms, it's not their problem. It's up to the government to deal with it. It goes back to the point that you're making. They realize profit from the sale of the pigs to the supermarkets or pork products, but it's the rest of society that's actually footing the bill. And again, it's not just in North Carolina and it's not just with pigs. There's another way to put this. If you make huge quantities of what everyone who pays any attention knows is bad food, food that is overwhelmingly fat, sugar, and cheap carbohydrates from which all vitamins and minerals and the nutritious components have been removed. And we have lots of those sitting very prominently in large bags in every supermarket in this country. 
if that's the cheapest way to fill your belly and you have a sizable part of your population whose budgets are very constrained, you're going to get the fact that the United States has the biggest obesity problem. Why is that relevant? Obesity is a route to all kinds of diseases as you get older. Your body is weakened by your excess weight and you have all kinds of medical problems and you become therefore needy for Medicare when you're older, Medicaid if you're lower income and so on and so on. These are expenses that someone's going to have to pay for. Medicare is a charge on the government. The government is going to have to pay for it. How is the government going to do it? It's going to tax you. Well, I'm an economist. We can add up what all the costs are of producing low-quality, profitable food items. And when you add them all up, the costs that the company doesn't have to pay, the company doesn't have, that makes the chips you gorge on while sitting on your couch at home, the company that makes them doesn't have any responsibility to help the people who get sick from eating that stuff all the time. They don't. If they did, if that was understood to be a cost, then that would not have been a profitable item to produce, and we wouldn't have had those crappy chips in the first place. It's only our strange system that allows the company to realize a private profit while pushing the real costs of what it does onto the government. And we don't therefore see it in the private sector. We imagine it's reasonable to get angry at the government for spending money on Medicare. But you know, if you don't want the government to spend all the money on Medicare, you've got to deal with the capitalist system that sets it up like that, that allows the people who make the decisions, the owners, the boards of directors of companies, to make a calculation in which they keep the profit, but they shift the burden of the costs of what they're doing onto the society as a whole. That's irrational, that is not efficient, and it is light years from democracy. And our factory farm system is like a celebration of allowing the profit motive to dictate what we have to eat so that only those of us with lots of disposable income can find a way to escape. And that's the tragedy. Those who see it, who understand it, who are smart enough to say, I am not going to put into my body food that is made for profit rather than for human nutrition. Those people, instead of fighting to change the system, use their income to escape from the system. The only thing weirder than that is to hear them open their mouths and celebrate the system that they spend every week trying to escape from. I want to give one more example of this. I mean, we could actually give a million examples, probably. And if we opened the line and took calls from people, they can tell us from their own experiences exactly what you're talking about, Professor Wolf. I have family members in Southwest Florida. And, you know, it's a very, I always enjoyed going down there. I, you know, the fact that there was a reason to go there to visit family was sort of just an excuse because it was so idyllic, so beautiful along the Gulf of Mexico, just a fun place to go and to take a break. 
I'm looking at a headline right now from about two weeks ago. Why so many dead fish are washing up on Florida's beaches? Subtitle, a toxic red tide is killing fish, displacing sharks, and going viral on TikTok. Is it getting worse? Well, I can tell you because I've been going down there for the last couple of years, it is getting worse. The scenes from Western Florida are hard to stomach. Fish carcasses dotting beaches for miles, a backhoe lifting a 400-pound Goliath grouper out of the water, hundreds of sharks swimming through neighborhoods and hordes of maggots wriggling along the shore. In the past three weeks, more than 1,700 tons of dead fish and other marine organisms and debris have washed ashore along beaches near Tampa Bay. They were killed by an overgrowth of toxic algae known as red tide that came inland earlier this summer. Why are algae blooms a natural phenomenon in Southwest Florida and across much of the world? Why are they so severe? And it's all because of agricultural runoff. It's because of the pesticides and the fertilizer. So you have agribusiness in Florida. Again, their expenses are hiring workers, getting inputs, producing or harvesting products, shipping them and realizing the sale. But the runoff is killing all of the other businesses, the fishing industry, the hospitality industry. People don't want to come to that part of Florida right now if all you're seeing are thousands and thousands of fish carcasses and the smell of death everywhere. But this has been going on and is increasing. And the government of Florida, the legislature, the governor of Florida, doing nothing. I mean, he's mainly focusing his attention on why People shouldn't be compelled to wear masks in the middle of a pandemic. Anyway, these are all of the related expenses that come down to us. It's for the people, not for agribusiness capitalists. Yeah, I cannot miss an opportunity to give my thanks to Governor DeSantis there in Florida. I mean, it's clear that if you have this kind of catastrophe on the Gulf Coast of Florida, not to speak of all the other problems that Florida has, especially the COVID problem, it's comforting to know that the governor has his pulse on what matters, not requiring you to wear a mask so that you can be, dare I say it, free to make the decision for yourself. I hope that the freedom doesn't extend to being free to make the decision for yourself as to whether or not you observe that other mandate of the government. You know, the one that says that when the traffic light is red, you can't proceed. You must stop. The government tells you you have to. But of course, Governor DeSantis might be soon telling us, well, no, I'm not going to mandate that you stop it. Red, uh, I'll let you make the decision. At that point, none of us will be able to drive anywhere that involves an intersection because of this idea of what freedom means. Or maybe Florida won't require a mandate that you have a license before you drive a car, or you have a license before you're a medical doctor, or any of the other, get ready, thousands of mandates that are imposed by government in order to have what we call civilization. But no... We have a governor who wants to stand up and really give it to us about 
no mandate for a mask. Meanwhile, the state destroys itself with a level of self-destructive pollution that is the model around the world for what other countries know they must try not to do. Professor Richard Wolf was our guest. He is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. We're going to continue our series where we look at agriculture under capitalism from a Marxist perspective next Wednesday. Be sure to check out Richard Wolf's website. It's rdwolf.com, and that's spelled R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.